0: Great reminders. We could very much be um, end there with those reminders of the gospel and those things. All right, so today we are starting a mini series on marriage, and um, many of you have probably heard uh, the illustration, usually applied to time management principles, where um, someone comes in with uh, some rocks, some Stones, uh, some um, sand and water, and tells the person to try to get all these things in this jar. And so they put the water in first. You can't get the other things in; it spills out. Or you put the sand in first. You can't get the rocks in. And then the principle is that if you put the uh, if you put the rocks, the bigger rocks in first, and then get the smaller stones and shake it around. They get around it, and then the sand and let that fit in all the cracks. Uh, then the water, and let that fill in all the smaller things. You can get all the things in the jar um, if you do it in that order. And the principle is to make sure the big rocks are in first. And so in time management, you'd say, you want to make sure your big priorities are in the jar first, and you do that. Well, when it comes to um, marriage, um, There's some big rocks or principles, and I think that same illustration applies to some principles about marriage that I think are important to us. So we're going to look at some big rocks, basically three weeks of big rocks that I want you to get in your thinking jar regarding God's plan and design for marriage And that is one, the definition of marriage, number two, the design of marriage, and number three, the display of marriage. And those are the three rocks we want you to get in in your jar or your worldview or your thinking about this. And so why this and why do it this way? Because um, every marriage is not the same. In fact, um, if you go to um, the Proverbial Christian Bookstore which I got to quit saying that because they're not around as much anymore. And of course, Tali's we used to have here. and But let's say you went to that section on Amazon or CBD or wherever you shop for uh, Christian books or whatnot, or you went to that shelf, you're going to see like tons of books on marriage. And, and it's almost like unlimited all the different things about marriage and spouse and showing love to your wife and doing this or what or whatnot and 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 it can can be pretty frustrating you know I mean it's like you know and I'm like okay I want the big ideas and the big the big principles and um I remember uh because and and the reason that I want to go back to the big ideas the three big rocks to put in your jar um is because marriages are all unique in fact um uh, when the Bible talks about uh, loving your wife um, and 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 women respecting your husband, the Greek word is idios, um, and so you girls are like, "Yeah, I knew my husband was an idiot." See now Greek confirmed it, right? Um, and the, the individual to you, that you, there's there, there's no marriages made up, made the same and so and so yeah if there's some guy that writes a book about how to treat your wife well well if your wife has the same exact personality and temperament and desires and background and shadow in her life and upbringing as his wife then great if they're not the same then it might not always apply to you and every guy in this room and girl in this room that, that has tried to do something the way somebody else did it doesn't work um there are certain things that um Um, give you a little one. Um, so my pastor growing up was a very gentleman with his wife and and I don't think she ever opened the car door for herself. And so he would open the car door for her and let her in. And then he would walk around and, um, and, and get in. And I thought that's how husbands are supposed to treat their wife. And so then I get married and Jamie's like, if it's in the middle of the summer and it's 90 degrees out there, I don't want you putting me in this hot tin can. I want you to get in there first, turn the air conditioning on, and then I'll get in once the windows are down. Oh, so I, my wife isn't the same as his wife. And I need to, you know, who cares what culture was in 1950? She doesn't want to get in the hot car when it's in the middle of the summer, right? So I know that what my wife likes is for me to go start the car and crack the window so the heat can get out and turn the air conditioning on and then she'll get in the car. And, um, and she does it much sweeter than what I just said. So don't, um, she's with the kids today, so I'm free. And so don't tell on me. Okay. No, I'm joking. That's a bad way to start a a sermon on marriage to talk about hiding stuff. Anyway, um, I I remember several years ago, uh, we, we were doing, we had a a small group for marriage for for couples and, um, and there was this couple that came to me and, and and they were frustrated that they wanted to have a separate class for themselves or not just for them because they said you know we we have either the group for people that are divorced and remarried so they're on like this or we have the people that are on their first marriage for these different classes or groups and but but their situation was he was on his second marriage and she was on her third so we needed to find have a class for people that were on one was on second one was on third and I was thinking, okay, if we go with that logic, do you know how many different classes we're going to have to offer? We don't have enough rooms in the state to have enough classrooms for that to, to, to split things up. And that's why I'm saying, rather than go so specific, we want to get those big ideas of what the Bible says about marriage. So, why are we even having a, a, a mini series on marriage? Uh, so, my goal is to elevate us as a church, our view of biblical marriage and the ultimate divine purpose of it in the glory of God and the display of Christ's relationship to his church. And so note that I use the phrase biblical marriage rather than just traditional marriage because um, uh, we we are about biblical because whatever traditional means, I mean, there are things when we talk about traditional marriage that were not anywhere close to what the Bible would have the design of marriage be. So we're about what the Bible says about what marriage is. And you say, well, so what if I'm single, or what if I'm divorced, or widowed, or some, you know, whatever, you know, I'm not married. Do I just I skip church for three weeks now? No. Um, so why do you, why is this important for you? Well, one, it's in the Bible. I mean, to state the obvious, which means it's in the Bible, which means it applies to you, and it's important. Um. And as we will, secondly, as we will see, marriage has a much bigger purpose than the immediate, and by immediate I mean in this lifetime. And it's and and the third reason is that we are one. We as a church are one, and so it's kind of like if if you live in a town that a factory polluted the air, you don't say, "Well, it's not my problem." That's the people that that run the factory. No, no, no. We live in the community. We're breathing the air. I mean, this is our air. This is part of our society. Uh, another reason why it's important to you, no matter what your marital status is, is is that it is foundational to many other um, worldview implications that you need to have. How you're going to vote, how you're going to handle yourself around others, wh- where you go, and how you celebrate with others. Um, and, and and the final reason is uh, why this would apply to you if you're not married right now is that you don't know what the future has. I mean, you don't know. I mean, uh we had one of our former members um at at eighty six remarried mrs Mrs. Rosenau uh, married a much younger man. he was eighty two and um you'd have no idea what the the future now she did really well for herself. He's a retiree from NASA, and I heard he has a indoor swimming pool at his house. so if you're going to remarry remarried, I mean, you know that's the type to go for, but and you don't know, so anyway, so we want to elevate that view of marriage. I want to pray and I want to read two portions of past scripture in Genesis, and then we'll dig into this. Father, would you help us now? We need you. We depend upon your spirit, and we thank you for your word, and we expect it to work, and we trust it to do that. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, Genesis 1. I'll begin reading verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said to them, You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, you, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that hath breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then chapter 2, if you jump to verse 18, God says this is good. And then there's a dilemma. Verse 18, God's word says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed. Every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens had brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature... That was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and to the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. You know, when we go back to these foundational statements in the first three chapters of Genesis, it really sets the pace for how we see the rest of the world and the rest of history. And it's amazing that when we talk about marriage and creation of man and the genders of man and woman, it's very confusing in our culture, isn't it? I mean, we, this is a very hotly debated and contested issue right now. And it has been for some time, um, but it's confusing in our culture because we, we're in bondage, and the, we can't even know what marriage and genders are without learning it from God. We have sinful hearts, and culture is confused about this. The world's view of marriage seems ridiculous to us today. In fact, if you're if you're what you're consuming all the time in the media and uh, shows on Netflix and Hulu and um, youtube and stuff i mean you are you're seeing um marriage made fun of and distorted and even in funny cutesy ways of 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 you know how a blended family would work or how things might i mean even um you know the latest uh parenting magazine with um those of you that are um uh, you know, uh, Sean T fans with he and his husband uh, and their and their their children on the cover of this, and this is what's so portrayed in our culture. Um, that I mean, our culture thinks that marriage uh, in the biblical sense is an institution that's outrun its course, um, and the problem is not the institution, but the people who've been involved in it. The fact is that we live in a country where. Um, they're very passionate they're about defending the union between two men or between two women or um the freedom outside of wedlock in sexual relations but without the bible without divine revelation we have no we can't get beyond that view so um if you want something bigger than a sitcom relationship you need to look to god and we can't learn about marriage except from god the world thinks that marriage is some weird, mysterious, or some sexual experience, or getting something for, for themselves, or emotional fulfillment, or having a 50-50 partnership, or some uncontrolled feeling. Um, and they think that's what it's supposed to be. Some feeling, or some caught up in some um, uncontrollable emotion, and you're with that wave of euphoria. Um, and that's and, and not a new thing. And we're going to talk a little bit about that oneness next week, and so I guess for parents in the room, next week might be a little PG-13. I mean, we won't be crass, but like, just in case you're thinking about that for e-kids and stuff like that, but... um uh, so our culture's confused, but it, but it wasn't any different in Jesus' day. I mean, the, the Matthew 18, one of the great passages about marriage is, you know, the, the religious leaders are coming. They're confused. They're questioning Jesus about the resurrection and marriage, and even the disciples are confused. And he goes back to the same passage that we just read, the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, that in the beginning, God created men; Therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his own wife, and shall they two shall become one flesh. That in marriage, 1 plus 1 will equal 1. And so, um, Christians don't always have it together either. Um, There was an interview in World Magazine with Andreas Kostenberger, who's a professor at Southeastern Seminary. He, He said that the church's divorce rate equals that of the secular world because the church has adopted a secular mindset full of superficial remedies that don't deal with deeper problems. For example... Most of the marriage resources in Christian bookstores are focused on how-to lists and techniques. They're really indistinct from the secular world. And then he goes on to say, Christians need a deeper understanding of biblical marriage and how it fits into the broader context of the Bible, not just tips for better communication. Liberalism is pervasive and promotes the notion that we, that, um, that we out we're out to make whatever choices are best for us as opposed to the biblical idea of sacrificial love. And basically he's saying, we need to get back to the big rocks of what the Bible says about marriage. And so what is marriage? And so I'm gonna give you a a definition and then I'm gonna back up from that a little bit, uh, ramp up to that definition and then unload it a little bit and that'll be our time that we have uh, today. And so the definition I'm gonna present to you and and submit to you is this, that marriage is a lifelong covenant covenant of companionship between man, between a man and a woman. And so uh, a lifelong covenant of companionship between one man and one woman, and all those words are important. And so basically it's one man, one woman united together in a covenant of companionship, a covenant union. This is a lifelong committed relationship between one man and one woman. Woman. And so I'm going to share some principles that are kind of, I mean, they, you might think these are very elementary, and, and and you're right, but they're also very profound. And the scriptures are that. That's what they are. I mean, the scriptures are that swimming pool that are shallow enough for the toddler to pl- splash around in and play, but also deep enough for elephants to do cannonballs in. I mean, so when the scriptures present these things, they are both immediate and wow, but they're also Deep and so here we go. Here are some of those principles that marriage, according to passages we've read that we've seen here, and with the rest of the Bible, in, in that God created marriage. It is God's doing. God created marriage. God created mar- God created mankind, and then He created marriage. So God created. Now this is a major battlefield not just in theology but also in sociology and in politics and in science this is controversial to say god created mankind in the beginning god god created them he created mankind and the scripture says he created them in two distinct genders he created the them male and female. So some of the things that God points out there when he said that in, in chapter one, that he said, let us mean God, the plural, the three in one, the three in one, the tri unity, three, go- three persons, one God, the Trinity, let us make man in our image. So God is this perfect relationship with father, son, spirit. In our image. Now, what does that mean to, that mankind is created in the image of God? A lot. I don't know all of it totally, um, but it, uh, it, some of that, to the imago day. the image of God is such an important thing um, that humans are created uh, in the image of God. And note, male and female are both created equally in the image of God. <clears throat> Humans are not created as isolated persons. In his image, among other things that being made in the image of God, means that they are relational beings, Um, especially when it comes to family and most specifically in marriage scene, but also in a spiritual family or the church family. God created us. God did not create you to be isolated. He created you to be um, relational. That is part of the image of God. So, both male and female were created equal. and you see this Now look at this. the Bible cuts both ways so 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 women are held in just as equal honor in the image of God. in fact, the created e- e- male and female created he them in his image, and then the creation mandate to subdue and have dominance over the earth is given both to man and woman. The creation mandate is given to both. Men and women have much more in common than they do distinct. Um, and so, equal in persons, equal in importance. Now get this, this is radical. The, the implications of this would not have been believed and practiced in what we would call traditionalism, even in this country, even in the last century. As We see this in the scriptures. We see the honor bestowed upon the the woman in Proverbs thirty one for her real her business endeavors and domestic endeavors, um, we see this in the spir- spiritually uh, in Joel chapter two, um, the the prophecy that the spirit and the sons and daughters would have dreams and have that spiritual en- empowerment, and then we see in Acts two the prophecy of Joel being fulfilled, and that everyone and that in the gospel were not male female barbarian, slave, Jew, Gentile, we are the church. And so this image of God is given to all, the cultural mandates given to male and female. Yet, and this is when the blade of the two-edged sword cuts the other way, yet the Bible does portray, we see this hinted at in Genesis, and we see it substantiated later in the New Testament teaching about the home, that there are distinct functions between male and female. If you want to jot a few of these down, look ephesians five Colossians three, Titus three, and first Peter three those chapters uh um it, it's hinted at here in genesis uh substantiated later in the New Testament that there are distinct functions, and that's where we would come to this what the scriptures call um uh, what what the equality yet distinction that we would not that the, the term we would use to describe that is controversial term complementarianism and um so so you might say but aren't gender roles a result of the fall now when we just saw this genesis 1 male female genesis 2 the roles of help meet and needing help meet in genesis 2 when does the fall happen what chapter chapter 3 so chapter 1 and chapter 2 come before chapter 3 so were the distinctions in the genders and the roles were that was that a result of the fall or before the fall it was before the fall and so uh, it is God's design that there would be two genders with distinct functions, equal inequality. And then sin doesn't create gender roles. Sin actually distorts the gender roles. And so the gender roles are hinted here before the fall. The Trinity is an example that they are equal. God God is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. Yet there is distinction and even hierarchy within the Trinity that the Son submits to the Father that proceeds from the the Spirit proceeds from the Son. There's this functionality even within the Trinity. Um, we see that in the we see that distinction in the creation order that Adam was first formed and then Eve. We see that in the naming of mankind that God names mankind and then Adam gets the opportunity to name um, woman. Of course, you know the joke. He here's, he's been this bachelor in the woods his whole life, right? And then he goes to sleep, wakes up, and Eve comes to him, and he just says what any guy would say: "Whoa, man!" And then he says, "Okay, that's what we'll call her woman, right?" It'll, okay, um, and um, so um, we see those. So we the, the fall affects those role in men. In men, it makes them totalitarian, abusive dictators, jerks. On one extreme, or it makes them passive, aloof, yes, dear, deadbeat dads. On the other extreme, in women, it makes them wallflower accepting abusive things, or the, the other extreme is the dominant, I don't need no man, you know, or what, you know, or, or what, or whatnot, and those things. So, these this is a huge issue in our culture, um, perhaps one of the biggest battlefields in our day. Um, this idea of complementarianism. In fact, Bruce Ware, who's a um, a teacher at Southern Seminary, he says that today, the primary areas in which Christianity is being pressured by the culture to conform are the issues of gender and sexuality. So our culture pushes this. The church is called and has been called all along to be counter-cultural. And so we've done, we have copied and approved the culture as a church way too much, whether that be in segregation or racism or um, uh, worship techniques or borrowing business structures and adopting that as church governing structures or political movements or however it might be. We shouldn't do that when it comes to marriage and the roles of man and woman. So the real issue, as every issue comes down to, is the authority of the Bible. Uh, What does the Bible say and is it things? So... um, and so whenever you go away from that, you're eventually going to le- end up in denying the biblical gospel and and not just that that is the big issue and then on the on the physical side i mean this the the fabric of society is tied to this uh the view so um, so there might be some um um those that would object to this just to be totally uh, give them the benefit of the doubt actually have some things. I mean, they're evangelical feminists that very rightly point out excessive chauvinism in the church. Um, there, there have been times when Bible believing churches were very hurtful and abusive and chauvinistic in their practices. Um, and, um, and so that's why I say we don't want to defend the traditional view of gender roles for marriage. We want to defend the biblical view of them. Uh, and, and so um biblical manhood is what's important here. Uh we see whenever the bible uh actually of, often elevates um women. Uh and so this is for single people too because mature manhood and womanhood are not dependent upon marital status. Status they're built on God's design and it's part of our personhood. And so to those that might be and, and to not this is actually close to home uh those that would even struggle with with gender um uh, dysphoria or, or or wondering about gender identity or what not and, and i 'm not saying this as a like a pie in the sky out there this is the inside thing i mean i have uh, good friend I have some family members and I mean this is not I'm not saying this is like those people this is us people um that this is part of us but I would going back to God's design and say God had a design for you and part of that in is your gender and your gender is part of your personhood and God's design for you and so to challenge you to embrace that And so, as Emil Bruner said, our sexuality penetrates the deepest metaphysical ground of our personality. As a result, the physical differences between man and woman are a parable of the um, spiritual differences that are more ultimate nature that God has. So, anyway, um, this is um, very, very important. Uh, We're going to, especially in the reference to these next two weeks, that we look at this. Um, All right, the Bible, therefore. Hinting at it here in Genesis, unpacking that forest later on in the New Testament mass- passages I, I mentioned, gives us the nature of masculinity and femininity um, and the diverse responsibilities um, while rooting that in creation. In creation, in creation order. It's why creation is so important. So, why marriage? Why did God do this? And we read this in the passage there's this divine dilemma. But God says it is, after saying that all these things in the six days of creation are good, He comes in chapter 2 and says it is not good for man to be alone. And so, verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2, this great sleep falls on Adam, uh, the rib, and He brings woman. Now, when the Bible says it is not good for man to be alone, uh, what does that mean? We'll start with what that doesn't mean. What that does not mean is that that, um, that it was morally imperfect. That, that that man was like somehow not um, the way he ought to have been. Because singleness is in the Bible. Uh, in fact, it's a commended state in the Bible. Um, and, and it's not to be commanded. Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians 7. It's commended, but he's not commanding this. And even though a another group in the church a few centuries later would start commanding it for their priests to remain celibate and still do today. It's not commanded in the Bible. Um, And there are various reasons for um, singleness. Uh, There's a modern uh, um, and biblical. Jesus was not married. Paul was not married. Um, So don't say you can't learn about marriage from a single man Uh, because, I mean, you couldn't learn from Jesus, Right. Um, uh, and we have John Stott uh, is a wonderful example in modern church history and we have men in our own community that are wonderful pastors that God's not called to marriage and um, th- this is the, so, so to say it's not good for man it does not mean it's morally imperfect but it refers to completeness that man was incomplete and so basically ladies I'm going to set you up for an amen here that men need help Okay yeah um, and yeah, they need help, um, so God's answer for man's loneliness was marriage. this was part of God's design. God made man lonely on purpose. He picked the spouse, a helper fit for him, a help meet, uh, and then God gave away the first bride, the rib God brought her to the man, and spoke and said to them. And this is what Jesus, Jesus says of this. Jesus refers back to this passage here. Um, and so God himself performed the first one flesh union. God performed the first marriage. And so there are many um, applications and implications of this. So here's an implication of this, that God created this union. For this cause shall man leave father and mother. That God created marriage. Before the fall. Now, a few things I want you to know. This is before the fall, so before sin. It's also before civil government. So civil government's not brought into being until later on in Genesis. Civil government's not there. So marriage is created as an institution before the institution of civil government, and it's way before the church. So the church is not there. So what that means, if marriage is an institution, created by God before civil government and before the church, that means civil government nor the church have the right to change the definition or the nature of what God created. Do you hear that? I mean, there's tons of applications there. God created it before civil government and before the church. Therefore, none of them. So God performs weddings, not a justice of the peace, not a preacher, not a civil judge, not Elvis impersonators in Las Vegas or Gatlinburg. None of them, they don't create a marriage. They might be there when God does the union. You get to perform a marriage ceremony. God's the one doing it. We get to be witnesses to God doing math, one plus one equaling one. The two become one, and we just get to see God do it. So, in this sense, marriage is made in heaven because God is the one that originated it. Marriage is the one flesh union that God performs, Natural man doesn't understand this apart from God. You can't learn marriage except from God. So it is not a human institution, and therefore humans don't have the right to change it. God created it before the fall, before the church. Okay, so so God created marriage, and God created it to be a covenant. So we have two equal yet distinct genders, and we'll go to the next point there. God created marriage between one man and one woman. That's how God planned it. One and one, lifelong, monogamous, committed together. And then the fourth point here, biblical marriage is based upon covenant, not merely contract. Now, when we we're going through Malachi, and Malachi chapter two, that brought up this idea that marriage is, ba- is, is the idea of covenant, not contract. And so I want to look, look up a few passages together with us. So let's go to Malachi chapter two. Malachi chapter two. Verse fourteen, Malachi two fourteen says this, but you say, uh, "Who? Why does he not? Because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant, covenant." And then I want to go back to Proverbs chapter two, Proverbs chapter two in verse 17 Proverbs 2:17 where it says this who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her god and then what we saw there in Genesis 2:18 that God said it is not good I will make him a helper fit for him is a covenant that God does. So a contract is is, a, is an agreement between two individuals. A covenant is an agreement between three: the human and the human and the divine. It is with God. So marriages are not. And so the difference. See, there, the, even in Hammurabi's law, uh, ancient law, it was more of a more contract. But the biblical and the Hebrew idea. Just as ancient was the idea that there was a sacredness to it, that there was a covenant, not just contract. Not a two-way relationship, but a three-way relationship. And so, the basis of marriage is covenant of companionship. Covenant of companionship. So the basis of marriage is not sex. The basis of marriage is not love. It's a wonderful part of it Ought to be a part of it. Needs to be there. If you come and say, well, why do you guys want to get married? Well, we fell in love. My next question is going to be, okay, so why do you want to get married? <laughs> you know, because that's not a, the basis. Not marriage. Not a feeling. It, it is, it's not some mysterious thing or getting something to yourself or even a sexual experience. Well, we messed up, so we have to get married. No, 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 no. The basis of marriage is not sex. Got any Bible behind that? Yeah. Jesus, woman at the well. Go t- Get your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, you've had so many husbands, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. So Jesus is identifying that sexual union is not the marriage. It's not marriage. So don't guilt someone that says, oh, you have to get married now. No, 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 no. That's not the basis of marriage. basis of marriage is covenant, not sex. It's not some, it's not the basis isn't some uncontrollable feeling. And you know why? If you make the basis of your marriage anything else but covenant before God, you're going to lose it. Because feelings come, feelings go. Mysterious, gushy, gushy come and go. Getting your emotional fix, the 50-50, the whatever it is, it's going to come, going to go. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, marriage is more than love for each other. In your love, you see only heaven of your own happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status. It is an office. Justice is a crown and not a merely the will to rule that makes the king. So it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. So the basis of marriage is not Love, sex, or even procreation. The basis of marriage is covenant. And so, as Piper says, staying married is more about keeping covenant than it is about keeping in love. Staying married is more about keeping in covenant than keeping in love. So your spousal, your fidelity, your faithfulness to your spouse is, is linked to your faithfulness to God. That you will leave father, mother, cleave to a and wife. And when you want to learn about covenant and covenant keeping, God is the one to learn that from. So when your marriage is rooted in a covenant, it can weather any storm as long as you both shall live. When it's rooted in covenant. And this undergirds for us the importance of family. The instability of family goes against God's goal for mankind, The marriage covenant shows how important family structure is and God's purposes for humanity. Um, And so the home is so important. That's why we want to have really a family emphasis uh, in God's teaching. And so some broader implications, and then I want to make some personal implications for us, that God's definition of marriage, that is a covenant of companionship between one man and one woman for a lifelong relationship commitment, is not just for Jewish people. You say, well, yeah, that's what he wrote back then for Jewish people. No, it's not just for, because he, he rooted it in creation. And even when Jesus referred back, he said, from the beginning. Um, it was, it was for, intended for the entire human race, and it is good for the entire human race. So marriage is one of the most fundamental institutions in any society. And, and we are called to seek the good of our community. And one of the ways we do that is by seeking the good by upholding the fabric that makes for good society. Um, and th- Of course, the idea of s- sexual freedom and getting away from this is epitomized and started in the ideas of Sigmund Freud. Um, and one British anthropologist wrote about this. That he, he, he did a study of 86 different culturals, cultures and he found that the, the those that got away from strict marital monogamy all declined. In fact, they'd studied these different cultures. That in human records, he says, there is no instance of a society so retaining its energy after a complete new generation has inherited a tradition that does not insist on prenuptial and postnuptial continence, or basically keeping sex inside of marriage. That three generations and it's gone. Um, and so to affirm m- biblical marriage means you're going to deny certain other things and so even in our church's doctrinal statement we say this that we believe in the holy covenant of marriage after creating male and female God created marriage for them marriage is a covenant in which a man and woman leave their parents and form a lifelong monogamous bond for the purpose for this, these purposes uh, picturing the relationship of jesus and his church companionship procreation and deferment of uh, the of temptation thus marriage is a permanent covenant broken only by death and specific scriptural exemptions such as unrepentant adultery further me furthermore all expressions of sexuality outside the bonds of marriage are deemed sinful sexual immorality These include, but are not limited to, this is our church's doctrinal statement, acts and lifestyles such as homosexuality, bestiality, prostitution, polygamy, polyandry, and polyamory. Um, And we further believe that those practicing such acts should be treated with love and respect and presented the life-changing news of the gospel. Church membership is available to all those who repent of their sin and believe the gospel. And so there I means there's certain other implications of affirming and denying. Um, we see this in doctrinal statements throughout the centuries. I, I copied the, the, the statement on marriage from the London Baptist Confession. Uh, well, I don't have time to read that there. But to give this, here we go. So we've brought back up to that definition. A co- lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman. A covenantal union. They pledge loyalty and love to each other a lifelong committed relationship between a man and a woman and so I want to ask a few questions and apply this to us whether you're married or not do you have a biblical view of marriage in your worldview that it's in your it's in your thinking that the, 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 the Bible is it, it's just becoming our worldview that we think of it this way and it's going to affect so many different things. And so, what, so we want our kids to have this biblical worldview of what God's design of marriage is. We want single people, we want our whole church, we want others to know about this because it is good for all mankind, whether they're saved or not. Because um, how you see that makes a difference, makes all the difference in the world. And if you're married, if you are married, is your marriage primarily based upon covenant or something lesser? And maybe you might be, I might be talking to someone who's thinking about something, about ending something because of some lesser reason. And um, I would say it is covenant. Um and that's not to say that the Bible does, I mean, we live in a fallen world and Jesus himself said for certain reasons, unrepentant adultery. Um, Paul would say for desertion uh, and, and and I think that there's an Old Testament passage about not giving physical aid or so you could even, I would personally lump uh, unrepentant abuse and things in, in, in those things. So there are biblical reasons for it, but it is for unrepentant versions of that and um, that what God would allow divorce and remarriage. So, um you say, well, what if I've messed up in my marriage? And it's too late for me, right? No, 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 no. no. There's always grace. And there's always moving forward. And that marriage is only a picture of something bigger. Um, so we focus on what's bigger. Um, God himself made recognize this and made allowances for those things. So, and, and then I would also say to all of us that our, primarily ide- our primary identity is not married or unmarried. Don't let culture do that, all the singles here and Single Awareness Day or what. No, 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 no. Our identity is not in married single. Our identity is Christ. And and when you see that your primary identity is not whether you're married or not married, your primary identity is that you are in Christ. And everything in Christ is yours and everything Christ has is yours. And, And a great illustration of this is like if I have a box and i put something in that box everywhere i take that box whatever object i put in that box is with me if it's hot in that box that object in the box is hot if it gets cold the object in the box gets cold if the if the box gets tossed in the back of the van the whatever the contents of the box are but when you are in christ everything in christ his righteousness his goodness his peace his, i mean everything you are in christ that is our identity and so Let's find our primary identity in that. And so when your marriage is rooted in covenant, it will weather any storm as long as you both shall live. And this is not, I believe, a, a feeble attempt of a biblical definition of marriage. I hope it'll help us. Next week we're gonna bridge on that and look at the design of marriage, of the oneness, and get in some application in that. So let's pray. I'm close.